sermon this morning from Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 54. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45. This is the word of the Lord. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened they feared greatly saying Truly, this was the Son of God. Lord, having seen these miracles on the last day, at the last moment of the life of Christ, we now, with our brother Isaac Watts, say that we would not boast in anything other than the cross. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown as that which Christ wore on that wonderful cross. We bless you, Father, this morning for all of your mighty works. We extol you who rides on the clouds. We shout for joy that you are the God of all creation. We know that you've made the earth and all that is in it, that you made it good, but that we have fallen far from you. Therefore, we especially exalt, exalt your mighty works in our salvation. That we who fell so far could be brought so near. We come and ask this morning, right now, that your spirit would be here among us and again draw us near through the preached word that we would hear not simply about Jesus, but that we would hear Jesus speak to us, call us to himself, open our eyes, that in our hearts this morning we would sense that same burning passion 
that the disciples did on the road to Emmaus? Because you are here, Jesus, in the person and work of your Spirit. We ask for your Spirit to be poured out generously and abundantly upon Pastor Phil, that he would know your word, that you would allow him to explain it well, that you would give him courage and boldness so that whenever he opens his mouth, he would proclaim Christ and he would preach the whole counsel of the word of God. We wait now expectantly, Lord, because you have promised to be here, because we are gathered only and completely in the name and based on the work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and God's people say, Amen. Well, we've come up to the fourth miracle of Christ's passion, the earthquake and the tearing apart of the rocks. And you may wonder why I've even included that as being one of the miracles, because we see earthquakes and uh, don't consider those to be miracles. But I think there are five things that set this miracle apart from all of uh, any other earthquakes. And uh, the first is that it came immediately after Christ's loud cry of victory. Uh, Matthew says there were five things that happened right around the same time. Uh, The death of Christ, the temple veil tearing, the earthquaking, the rocks splitting apart, and certain tombs uh, opening up. Uh, Just look at verse 50 there. Jesus, when he had cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit, and behold, what do we see when Jesus dies? That word behold, he wants us visually to connect four things with his death. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. Now those things were (laughs) amazing enough just on their own, but to have them connected uh, with Christ's shout was even more amazing. And so verse 54 says, Now when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, They feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, it gives a a slightly different uh, rendition of this. They harmonize beautifully, but it uh, looks at the story from a slightly different twist. Matthew mentions both the voice and the miracles that flowed from the voice, instilling awe in this centurion. But Mark narrows it down to one thing in that centurion's mind that gripped him with fear and with awe, and it was the voice of Christ. Let me read that. Mark 15, 37 through 39. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, that's the immediate sequence in Mark's mind, but the centurion wasn't at the temple. He didn't see that. And that's the only miracle that Mark uh, brings up, and yet... Verse 39 says, So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And so the only thing that Mark mentions as instilling awe into this centurion was the way in which he cried out. There was something about his voice that made him think of deity. When he saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And so there was a strangeness about that voice which caused the earthquake and all of these other things. That's the clear implication, I think, 
of Mark mixed with, uh, with Matthew. Uh, and so Christ really was the epicenter uh, of the earthquake and the strange splitting apart of boulders. And I think we know why, because Jesus was even at that moment upholding all things by the word of his power. And that's one thing we, I think we need to be very careful about is when we think about the incarnation of Christ that we not think that Jesus got rid of his Godhead. He was fully God and fully man while he was here on earth. So he was omnipresent, he was omniscient. As to his manhood, he wasn't. But as to his Godhood, he was. For example, Jesus said that no man has ascended to the Father except for the Son of Man who came from heaven and who also is in heaven. So even while he was standing there, as to his Godhead, he was omnipresent. As to his humanity, he was localized. And so uh, Jesus was, even while he was hanging on the cross, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse... Well, it's in Hebrews 1 somewhere. He's upholding all things by the word of his power. And so the very voice that spoke uh, creation into existence, uh, the very voice that was on the on the uh, uh, the sea and saying peace be still and they obeyed him the sea was calmed uh, cries out here and when he cries out the creation uh, responds to it the second thing that sets this earthquake apart from all other earthquakes was not just the voice which caused it but that it coincided with the death of christ third thing that we see that sets this as a miracle apart is it was clustered with other miracles the miracle of the darkness the miracle of the rending of the veil the fourth thing that sets it apart is that it didn't follow the ordinary fissures in the ground. Rocks, you know, uh, rocks ordinarily will tumble, you know, to one side or another when they, they're moved around, but ordinarily you don't have rocks breaking open. But here, it's the rocks themselves that are split apart, and that's unusual. It's almost like they're, they're exploded here. And while most ancient non-biblical sources do uh, just reference the earthquake, there was one guy who was a witness of this, wrote 22 years later, by the name of Thallus. Uh, he was amazed by the earthquake, but he was also amazed by the rocks splitting apart. And he records that. To him, it was very unusual. According to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, he says, extraordinary rents and fissures have been observed in the rocks near this spot. Uh, Barnes says rocks are still seen at Mount Calvary, thus rent asunder. And then finally, the earthquake was selective. And I want you to notice in verse 52 that not all the graves were opened. It was just the graves of the people who were going to be uh, resurrected. Verse 52, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, etc. Now, Lord willing, at a later date, I... I want to comment on just that little section. Why does God allow those bodies to remain for three days exposed in their tombs? Uh, and we'll, we'll comment on that. But I want to emphasize the fact that verse 52 uses the word many, not all. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And so it was a selective earthquake and it was selective in other ways as well. Uh, despite the fact that this was a massive earthquake and two ancient... Um, um, accounts of this uh, indicated that it leveled cities as far away as Bithynia and Nicaea. It did not take down the cross. Mark makes it very clear the cross is still standing, but uh, there were probably a lot of things, the buildings around them that were not standing. 
Now, this was the epicenter of a, an earthquake that was so strong that a massive 30-ton stone that made the, the lintel and the holy place broke, crumbled to the ground, broke into pieces. And um, 40 feet from that lintel was the Sanhedrin Supreme Court Chambers, uh, Talmud, Shabbat 15a says, 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the Sanhedrin was banished from the chamber of hewn stone and sat in the trading station on the Temple Mount. Now, Ernest Martin was kind of puzzled with that phrase, and he started studying it. And um, he um, uh, came to the conclusion, and looking at all of the evidence, that that Sanhedrin Supreme Court uh, room was so damaged that it was unsafe. And so he comments, it says, he means that the judgment made by the official Sanhedrin against Jesus within the chamber of hewn stones was the last judgment ever given by the official Sanhedrin in their majestic chambers within the temple. It would show that God the Father demonstrated by the earthquake at Christ's death that the sentence of the Sanhedrin against Jesus would be the last judgment it would ever make in that authorized place. And so it was selective in a number of different ways. And I think all of these evidences show this was a sign. This was definitely a sign from God. It was a miracle to make people begin to think there's something different that's going on here we need to investigate well let's look secondly at the purposes of the earthquake we've already seen that all of these um, miracles did set jesus's death apart as being different than other deaths and this shares uh, with uh, with that uh, those other miracles the same um, uh, purpose but let me suggest five more reasons why god shook the earth and broke boulders into pieces the first is, I think, in terms of Jewish thought, that it showed God's uh, presence and his approval. And to me, this is the most precious aspect of this miracle. It showed God's presence and his approval. Previous to this, for three hours, there has been silence. The heavens are as brass. They're bouncing back. Any prayers that are being offered up, it's as if God turns his back upon the sun. But now, all of a sudden... God issues a cluster of miracles indicating he cares and uh, that he is present. A Holman's Bible Dictionary says, Earthquakes are used symbolically in the Bible. Many times God's judgment or visitation is described using imagery of an earthquake. Many times an earthquake is a sign of God's presence or of God's revelation of himself. And the dictionary indicates whether it was God's blessing or whether it's God's judgment that he is bringing. Many times God shakes the earth when he brings his presence to, uh, to symbolize the fact that he is indeed present with them. And it's to do it vividly to their minds, emotionally, so it really captures their attention. And let me just read you some samples from the Bible. Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. Isaiah longs for God's presence, even though he knows sometimes God's presence is uncomfortable, and there is a, a shaking sometimes that goes along with that. And that idea that the earth is shaken occurs over and over again. You can see that in the conquest of the land of Canaan. Uh, you can see it during the presence of some of the judges at Mount Sinai. I didn't list those verses in your outline but uh, I, I, I did give a sampling of some others uh, Ezekiel 38 verse 20 shall shake at my presence the mountains shall be thrown down Nahum 1 5 
The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. And sometimes, even when God's presence is with an individual, you see this kind of shaking. You see it with Elijah. You see it with Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. The train of God's robe fills the temple, and it says the posts of the door were shaken. Remember what happened in Acts chapter 4, verse 31. It says, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Several times in the book of Revelation, um, it it mentions God's presence coming and the earth uh, uh, trembling or the earth heaving at his presence. And I think that is such a wonderful symbol that God connects with uh, the time now that he, he, he establishes that his fellowship with the Father has been restored. In Jewish thought, it spoke of God's presence. Now, let me, let me just try to give you an idea of how God connected the last sayings of Christ together with these miracles, and I think you'll see there's a real significance to each one of these. Uh, the darkness is connected with Christ's anguished cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you look at all of the accounts, uh, that's when Christ cries out, and it makes sense. This is the symbol, again, of God's back being turned away from him, from the light of his presence being withdrawn. Um, what cry is associated with the lifting of the darkness? It's the cry, it is finished. There's no longer any need for God's wrath to be poured out upon the Son for Him to be separated from the Son because redemption has been accomplished. Everything needed has been put in place. Um, the next cry is the cry of victory, which Mark says uh, resulted in the torn curtain. And this is the beginning of the, the, the tremors. And as those move along, Luke indicates that as uh, Christ the epicenter, as it moves out, Christ utters another statement, his last statement, which expresses his complete satisfaction in God's presence. Those last words are, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And I think the earthquake is, is just a, a marvelous a symbol for anyone who had ears to hear that God was vindicating his son. God had heard the prayers of his son, and he was powerfully present with his son. Now, where this applies to us is that Jesus was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. And so we need to uh, think about our assurance of God's presence. He's purchased it for us. And if Jesus was absolutely certain, even prior to his death, that now... The presence of the Lord has been accomplished. That means he has purchased it for us, and we should be able to face death just as confidently as Jesus did. When you die, you should be able to say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit without any fear, without any consternation. And if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can. He has purchased that for you. Now, secondly, this earthquake signaled the importance of this event in God's eyes. God was shaking the foundation spiritually, and so I think it's very significant. He symbolically shakes the foundations physically as well. God wanted it to be absolutely crystal clear. This was not a mistake. This was not a tragedy. This was not something that was outside of his control. He had planned it. In fact, the cross of Jesus Christ was absolutely centrally important to his plan for this universe. Hebrews 12 makes um, the point that if the shaking of the earth at Mount Sinai demonstrated the significance and the importance of that covenant, then he says there's another shaking that's already begun, shows the importance 
uh, of the cross that cannot be ignored. And we'll look at that passage in a moment, but we need to ask ourselves, how important is the cross to us? Uh, when Paul made the statement, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that's 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he was indicating that absolutely everything he did related to the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything flowed from the cross. And I think the tragedy of many of us Christians is we go through a great deal of our lives in our own strength, to our own glory, doing things... Um, uh, without relating in any way to the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, that means those things are not going to count. We need to be able to understand how our housework applies to the cross of Christ. If it doesn't apply to the cross of Christ, it's going to get blown under the water by Mount Sinai, <laughs> by the law. It's not going to count for eternity. Have you related the cross of Christ to your jobs, to the raising of your children, to economics, to civics, uh, the cross of Christ relates to every area of life. And like I say, if you don't filter things through the cross, uh, they will be uh, destroyed as hay wooden stubble by the law of Mount Sinai. And so this was one of several miracles showing the importance of this event in God's eyes, and it needs to be considered important to us as well. Uh, thirdly, the earthquake hinted at the extent of Christ's victory. Um, it was not just... Um, an internal, invisible, personal uh, application of Christ's victory in, in, in our lives. I think the hymn writer captured this beautifully in the hymn, Joy to the World, uh, where he talks about uh, no more let thorns and thistles grow. Uh, but in that refrain, he says that that victory and that grace goes far as the curse is found. It, it's comprehensive. He, it, the cross of Christ is what purchased the renewal of the heavens and the earth which had uh, been under the curse uh, uh, ever since the fall of Adam. <clears throat> Let me just give you some of the earnest payments. When you give an earnest payment when you buy a house, it means that you put some money down, and if you don't buy it, that money's given up, right? It's like a foretaste. It's a, a part of the purchase of that. And when Christ saved the thief on the cross, he was giving an earnest, as it were, of the salvation of all of the redeemed. When he opened up the graves, he was giving an earnest, as it were, of all graves being one day opened up. Uh, when he raised people from the dead on the third day, he was giving an earnest of the resurrection of all on the final day of history. And that's why it's called the first fruits. The first fruits was just a representation earlier on of the final harvest. Um, and I believe that the earthquake is an earnest that the very physical creation is going to enter into redemption. Uh, every aspect of creation. The whole creation was judged, and the whole creation needs to be redeemed. Now I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and we'll look at a, an example. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, where it speaks of, since the fall of Adam, all of creation groaning, waiting for the redemption on the final day. Beginning at verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. There's something that the physical creation is waiting for and has a relationship to us. Verse 20, 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And so creation is going to be sharing in that deliverance, in that liberty that we are already entering into. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And so he is saying, when our bodies are resurrected, all of the rest of creation is going to be benefiting and entering into uh, that redemption as well. And so what better symbol of the groanings, the travailings that creation's going through uh, than this earthquake. And to me, this indicates God cares about even the physical creation. The very physical creation responds uh, to, to redemption, and we ought to value it as well. A lot of people are, what are they called, Glenn, when you just only care about spiritual things? Um, pietism. Uh, they neglect finances, and they think that's just something that's neither here nor there to God's kingdom. They neglect the... Uh, the uh, economy that's around us. They neglect uh, the creation, but God is interested in it, and he has a whole pile to say about that. And so to me, it's, it's significant that when the redemption was purchased that's going to eventually be fully applied at the second coming, there is some response even in the physical creation to that. The fourth purpose that commentators have isolated is that this darkness and earthquake were warnings of God's judgment. Uh, Joel 2 says, in the years preceding the destruction of Jerusalem, God was going to be pouring out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But he also was going to give miraculous indications of coming judgment in 70 A.D. In fact, Matthew 24 uh, refers to uh, earthquakes as some of those different uh, signs in the heavens and signs in the earth. And uh, he says there's going to be increasing earthquakes, and those are just the beginning of sorrows, Jesus said. But anyway, in, in Joel 2, he says, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So those signs were designed to wake up people who had ears to hear. Then I want to end with uh, point E. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 12 for this last purpose. And I believe it was, at least in part, Mount Calvary's answer to Mount Sinai's rumblings. Uh, there are two symbolic mountains that are used by Paul. There is uh, 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 Mount Sinai, which was outside of Israel in pagan land. It was in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Galatians says it was in Arabia, and uh, that was where the law was given, but it was given outside the temple, outside the sacrificial system, and all it brought was the judgments of God. And contrast to that is Mount Zion, which the temple mount was at, and Mount Zion has exactly the same law, but it's in the mercy seat, under the sprinkling of the blood, within the people of God, and so it's a quite different approach. One spells cursings, the other spells blessings. So let's begin reading at verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words 
so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. So we've not come to that. If you approach the law apart from the cross of Christ, yeah, it's going to be terrifying and it's going to bring nothing but condemnation to you. But if you've experienced the, the grace of God, if you've experienced the cross of Christ, then it's, you're approaching the law under the mercy seat. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, which speaks better things than that of Abel. So we've got a new mediator. We've got Jesus. And Jesus has the same laws, but suddenly those laws become precious to us because we're united with him, and he has kept those laws perfectly. Uh, those are the only two ways you can stand in relationship to the law. It's um, either under its condemnation, if you're outside of Christ, or under its blessing. And the law does bring blessing. So many times people emphasize only the verses that Paul speaks about, the, the cursings of the law. Well, if you're at Mount Sinai, that's all it's going to bring is cursings. But if you're in Christ, it will bring blessing. Anyway, continuing to read verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. So there's no way of escaping God's words. You have to receive it from one or two of the, the, those mounts. And um, if we ignore the cross uh, on Mount Zion, we're going to have to face the fire of Mount Sinai. But he says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. And notice that that shaking process had already begun in the first century, that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. I want you to notice God's character is not changed. He is no less holy or more holy than he was at Mount Sinai. He is no less loving or more loving than he was at Mount Sinai. God is not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The change that uh, uh, he's talking about there is a change within us have we by faith received the cross of the lord jesus christ his atonement his covering and it's my hope here that every person every young uh, child would receive by faith the redemption that jesus christ uh, has provided for them that means we cast our sins at the cross and we say there's no way i can deal with my sins at sinai i'm giving them to the lord jesus christ i'm receiving his righteousness as being sufficient for me and when we do that then calvary's rumblings will completely drown out the sound of sinai's rumblings it'll take away all fear it'll take away all insecurity in fact it'll make us joyful in those laws that god has given to us the shakings that removed your sins legally at the cross of jesus christ continue 
to do a shake-up work in sanctification and one day are going to completely remove every vestige of sin at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you look at your life and you realize, man, there's a lot that still needs to be removed, isn't there? There's a lot of shaking that God has to do. But let me read those verses once more and uh, we'll end. Hebrews 12, 27 through 29. Now, this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the shaking that began at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would do your shaking work removing all of the things that have come into this world and uh, that Satan is using to blind the eyes of people from the glory of your kingdom. And I pray that those things that should remain would remain in every country, that Satan would be pushed back further and further until the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ fills this world and captures it for King Jesus. I pray, Lord, that... uh, Uh, we would be a part of that process as we do our daily lives uh, under the cross of Jesus Christ, that we would do uh, our our housework, we would do our, our jobs as unto you, that there would not be a single thing in our lives we would do humanistically, independently of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we would do it as unto him with joy and glory that his kingdom captures every square inch of planet Earth. Uh, It is our hunger, it is our longing to see that happening, even in our own lifetime, that there may be incredible advances of his kingdom to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and sing a new hymn that talks about Calvary answering the loud rumblings of Mount Sinai. Let's stand as we sing together. Salvation holds in view the fun.
receive the Lord's charge and His blessing. Children of God, I charge you to realize that the cross of Jesus Christ is not just a footnote in history, not just a blip in history that will be outshadowed by the second coming. It is the center of history. It is the fulcrum upon which all history turns. It is the reversal of uh, history. And so I charge you to treat the cross of Jesus Christ as being as important as God treated it. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Mm-hmm.